first part is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. There is a time for everything, and a season for everything under the heavens, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And then the second one is Matthew 5, verse 4, and it is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Alex? Thanks, Andrew. And thank you to Chloe and Sarah and Gloria for leading us in worship this morning. Special shout out to all the Edgecombs who are here today. Well, this morning, I titled this message, uh, Grief as a Vehicle for Becoming Like Jesus. Grief as a Vehicle for Becoming Like Jesus. And one of the reasons why um, I had Andrew read from Ecclesiastes 3 was because we looked at that last week. And we talked about like seasons, what kind of season are you in? And I thought to myself, one of the things that most of us will have had to have gone through in the past couple of years, uh, if not in life in general, is some form of grief. So I thought it was an appropriate thing to talk about today. On a sunny Sunday afternoon, Nicholas Wolterstorff got the worst call of his life. His 25-year-old son, Eric, the oldest of his sons, had died in a mountain climbing accident in Austria. In his deep grief and sorrow, he wrote a book. It was part reflection on his struggle to understand and accept what happened, but also part narrative account of the different moments as he grieved. The day he received the call, a graveside visit a year after his passing. And in 1987, he actually published this book in hopes that it would actually help others navigate in their own losses. And when he wrote it, he wrote this one thing that says this, through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. It is said of that that no one can behold his face and live. And I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. Few Christians understand how sorrow and grief relate to God and ourselves. Yet it's vital to our relationship with God, and it plays a vital role in the kind of people that we become. Now, today I've drawn some uh, material from a couple different sources, Daryl Johnson and Peter Schizero, especially from this one book called uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which hits on this theme of grief a ton. Embracing grief is a vehicle for becoming more like Jesus. And every single one of us experiences suffering, but not all of us do so willingly. I would say most of us don't want to experience suffering, grief. And many of us learn how to grieve from the people closest to us, our families. We get examples of how they make sense of loss. And loss has the capacity to enlarge our souls, to, make, to mature us, to make us more compassionate, but it can also destroy us. And I think that's why the scriptures are so full of examples and invitations to mourn, to grieve, 
It is expected that when you live life, you will grieve. And that's why we read from Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep, a time to mourn. And it's why Jesus, when he begins his ministry, he announces that the kingdom of heaven has come, and then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus doesn't diminish suffering as something that you can overcome by removing or extinguishing your desires. He doesn't do that. The Greek word for mourning is this word penpain. It's one of the strongest words in the Greek language for grief, and it conveys the kind of grief of those who are mourning the loss of a loved one. It conveys the tears that well up on us, and we can barely get those words out as we grieve. These mourners that Jesus talks about are people who have come into contact with him and begin to mourn. Now notice Jesus doesn't say blessed are those who suck it up and get on with their lives. Blessed are those who minimize their pain. Blessed are those who are just thankful but don't really feel sad during major transitions in life. He doesn't say that because that's not what he's about. Jesus says blessed are those who mourn, those who are brokenhearted, who are grief-stricken. The brokenhearted are blessed. The brokenhearted are flourishing and, and in sync with his kingdom. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to weep. You're blessed when you mourn. And yet this isn't how you and I normally see grief, right? I mean, it's not really a welcome guest in our lives. We see it more as an interruption. We believe it's, some of us will believe it's a waste of time to grieve. It prevents us from getting things done, from re redeeming the time, we might even say. What good is it to be sad? How is that going to help us move on to fix maybe the thing that we actually caused us to feel all this pain? And it reminds me of this movie. We've talked about it in the past, the in Inside Out. Anybody Pixar fan here? Pixar fans? Yes, two, three, there you go. Okay. The right side is loving it. I don't know what's going on with you guys over here, but you're not into Pixar. The movie Inside Out is about human emotion. And there are these five key emotions. You got joy, sadness, anger, disgust, and fear. And they operate inside of this main character named Riley. Each emotion in this movie has, is a character as well. And they all play a role in helping, protecting, and developing human beings, and in this case, Riley. But these characters also color the way memories get recorded in life. And in the film, this one character, this one emotion, Joy, does everything possible to make sure that Riley is never sad. Which means she wants sadness to stay in a little circle that she's drawn on the ground and say, stay here, don't leave the circle. And if I'm honest with you, when I watched this film the first time, I could not stand Sadness. She was just such an annoying, whiny character. I saw her as an antagonist. She was messing with the plot. She was the unwelcome guest. I so much resonated with what Joy wanted to do for Riley. She wanted Riley to be content, and so sadness needed to stay away. She wanted, Joy wanted to keep things under control. 
because she ultimately saw sadness as a threat to her vision of what the good life is. And I think many of us do that. We see sadness as this threat to our vision of what life is supposed to be about. When in reality, in this movie, if Riley was going to mature and become a healthy person, she needed time and an opportunity to grieve, to express the grief. What grief? Well, she had moved cities. She left all of her friends, her hockey team. She felt this grief at leaving all of these connections, this home she had, all those memories, to a new city. And she needed room to grieve, and she was struggling to know how to do that, how to express that. Sadness needed to be seen as actually this helpful partner, a helpful partner along with joy. But Joy saw sadness and her actions as rebellious, as unhelpful, and really not willing to work with the team to accomplish what they needed to do. And in Joy's mind, it was what she wanted only. Sadness is not a threat to our well-being. It's the healthy, the healthy expression of sadness is vital to our development as human beings. Yet you and I will often struggle to treat sadness in the right way. We'll be like, stay in the circle, don't come out unless I say you can. Peter Scazzaro, he'll say, to reject God's seasons of, uh, for grief and sadness as they come to us is to live only half of our lives. We're missing out on a key part of our lives when we treat sadness as a threat. If we don't embrace grief and loss, we will never become the people God created and then redeemed us in Jesus to be. The degree that you and I are willing to grieve our losses is directly connected to our relationship with God and then the compassion that we can actually offer to other people. It's critical to our discipleship and formation in Jesus. God actually wants to use all of this sadness, the grief, the losses that we've experienced and actually use that as fertilizer for your transformation to to change you. But if we only treat grief as an interruption in our lives, we won't really be able to mourn. We'll still feel unable to stop all of our busy activity because we won't actually face that sadness. And we'll be prone to this superficial forgiveness. Because true forgiveness always requires that we allow ourselves to feel the pain of what was lost. You have to own the pain before you can actually forgive. And the deeper the wound, the longer that journey is going to take. This makes me ask that question, like, can you see why forgiveness, real forgiveness, really does need God to work in our lives? It's not this easy thing. It's not a superficial thing. It's not, sadness is not a waste of time. It's not an interruption. It is part of this formation process that God wants to take us on. And Jesus actually gives us permission to grieve. Grief is central to the way of Jesus. Think of John chapter 11. When Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, his close friend, and he sees everyone weeping, what does he do? And does he say, come on, everybody, stop this. This is ridiculous. Stop being so emotional. Get a grip. Stop crying. I'll take care of this right now. That's not what he does. That's not why we remember that story. We remember it because he weeps at Lazarus' tomb. 
on the cross when he hangs there and he's mocked by the people. What does he say? Does he say, hey, everybody, it's all good. In three days, I'm going to rise again. Don't worry about it. Don't weep. Don't cry. He said, praise God the Father. It's great. God is good. No, he doesn't say any of that. He actually says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It comes straight out of Psalm 22. It's a psalm of lament. This is why Isaiah, when he prophesied of the Messiah, he said that he would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's who Jesus is, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And it's also why the author of Hebrews, after Jesus has died and risen again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, will write in Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Sorrow, sadness, and grief are not antithetical to the way of Jesus. If they were central to his life, they will be central to the experience of those who choose to follow him. Jesus gives you permission to grieve because he himself grieves. Frederick Dale Bruner, when he speaks of this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, he says, the simple fact of being heartbroken, grief-stricken in mourning is blessed. On Jesus' authority, in deep sadness, human beings are in God's hands more than at any time. That's why you're blessed when you mourn, because you are ultimately becoming in sync with his kingdom. And in the past, when I've preached on this beatitude, I've highlighted three uh, things that we grieve over, we mourn over when we come into contact with Jesus. We mourn over our sin, we mourn over evil and suffering, and we mourn over the gap between what is and what will be. But this morning, what I want to spend time is, is thinking about how we can embrace grief in our life. How do we do that? Well, I want to suggest four ways you can begin to do that. One is you name your losses. Just name them, large and small. And one way you could do this is by taking a day to journal them and allowing yourself to feel them. Now, there are significant losses and there are insignificant or natural losses. Significant losses are those that we would often think about when we talk about losses. Assaults, divorce, abuse, irreversible disease, infertility, the death of a child or a parent or a spouse, discovering that one of your role models wasn't who you really thought they were. The betrayal of trust from someone close to you. Suicide, these are significant losses in your life. We often recognize these. But then there are these ones that are natural losses. They're a natural part of life, and we often call them insignificant. These are your kids leaving home. This is your child starting kindergarten, you retiring or leaving your uh, job to start a new one and realizing you're not going to see all those friends that you used to work with all the time that you love to spend time with. There's, it's a natural part of life, but there's still a loss there. These are relationships not working out the way you hoped. This is a leadership change at church or in your small group, at work. Things that happen throughout life, but they're still losses. Even things like your skin begins to age, your hair begins to go gray, you start to lose some of it. I feel that one. That's been a loss. So that's the first one. You name them. These insignificant and natural 
or sorry, significant and natural losses. And then the second is you give yourself permission to grieve. Jesus gives us permission, but sometimes for whatever reason, we struggle with actually allowing ourselves to grieve. Allow yourself to grieve as you write out or journal these losses and then share them with a trusted person. This might be someone in your DNA group, might be just a close friend, it could even be a counselor. See, we often treat those first significant, the significant losses as legitimate things to mourn over, but we don't treat the insignificant ones when both are equally important to grieve. And it doesn't mean that everybody grieves in the same way. Even within your own family, everyone's based on their experiences and their personalities, are going to handle and respond to grief differently. But one of the things to think through are what those things are and allowing yourselves to feel them. When I was 20 years old, I went through this ministry program called Freedom Session. And Freedom Session, uh, it, they take you through several steps to work through healing in your life. And one of the steps is you make an inventory of all the ways others hurt you in your life. Now, if you have, like, terrible memory, you're probably, like, really stoked at this point because you don't have too much to write down. I don't have that blessing. I feel like I remember too much. And so when I worked through making this inventory, it felt like the list was long. And the thing they have you do is you write down what happened, who was it, how did it make you feel? And the process of writing it down, for some reason, made these things more real to me. I knew they happened, but acknowledging them and writing them out started to bring up all these different emotions again that I hadn't felt. Anger, bitterness, uh, frustration, confusion, just sadness. There was a sense of loss. In, in, in fact, in, in one sense, it, it was almost as if things were getting worse for a period of time. Because I'm acknowledging all of these losses in my life, and I'm feeling them once again. But it's really just because I've actually been naming them and allowing myself to feel that. This was part of this journey. Yet what I got to do was now look at all of these memories, all of these losses, understanding that God was actually leading me through it. So even if I had felt like at the time I couldn't make sense of where he was, now I could revisit these moments, acknowledge them, understanding that God wanted to lead me through them. And then I would share these memories with people that I trusted in my life. This was not a fast process. But it brought healing in my life as I learned in some cases to forgive others, some cases to maybe forgive myself, and other moments just to accept whatever it was that had happened. Give yourself permission to grieve. The third is you bring your grief to God. Bring your grief to God. And you use the Psalms as a framework for grieving. The Psalms are like the church's prayer book. And it's only appropriate then that they'd be full of lament. Now, lament is not a word we use all the time. But laments pay attention to the reality that life can be hard, difficult, and sometimes even brutal. They take notice of the apparent absence of God. They take notice of the times where it seems like God actually isn't good. And so they cry out to God for comfort and care. Laments come out of this confusing in-between time in life where we're disoriented because of our suffering and pain. 
Bernard Anderson, he notes that laments far outnumber any kind of songs in the Psalter. More than 150 psalms are laments. And this summer, last week we talked, uh, the invitation was to spend time reading one psalm a day through the month of July and August. You should get to Psalm 57. And if you do that, you will notice this common theme of lament in a number of the psalms that you'll read. Let me just give you a few examples of lament. Psalm 43, verse 2. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Psalm 42, verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These are psalms of people expressing their confusion, their disorientation, their inability to make sense of what's happening in their life. And they're bringing all of that confusion and pain and not hiding it, not trying to suppress it, but bringing it out into the open with God. This is what Psalm 13 says, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face to me? This is what the psalmist feels. It feels like you are absent, like you are hiding from me. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But then verse 5 says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has become good to me. You see, laments, they cry out to God and highlight, Look, this doesn't make sense. You feel absent. I can't understand what it is you are doing in this moment. But they always turn to him and say, Lord, but you're the one I call on. You're the one I want to put my trust in, even in this moment. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. See, laments become the prayer book for the church, and the church, in part, has done that because we see Jesus do that. Just as he prays Psalm 22 on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's using a lament, a psalm of lament, to make sense of his situation. So one of the things I would encourage you to do as you bring your grief to God is to write out your own psalm or poem to God based on your experiences with him in life as a means of expressing and working through what it is happening in your life and four remember the compost pile now most of us have to deal with these stinky compost bins in our kitchen and you just throw or you probably if you're smart you probably put it in your freezer we're not smart we don't do that Um, but you know what goes in there you throw in your banana peels your food your all your food scraps coffee grinds, you know, you'll toss that into another bin outside, the the big compost bin, right? Where you throw all your your, uh, dead leaves, your grass, and whatever else you you need to throw in there that you're supposed to. You see, there's so much of our grief that happens in this confusing 
in-between time of life, these phases of grief, right? The first part is where you identify and feel the pain, but the second phase of grief is the confusing in-between. And the third part of, of grief is letting the old die so that this new birth can take place, this new life can happen. And in the in-between, it's really hard because we don't have control over how long that lasts. So we want to run out of that place. We want to find ways to distract ourselves or do whatever it is that we need to. But we have this hope as Christians that enables us to trust Jesus in this time, and it's that God uses all things for our benefit, for his glory and for the good of others. And there's this book called Paradise Lost by John Milton, and he compares the evils of history to a compost pile, this mix of these decaying things, substances like vegetable fruits, peels, dead, uh, um, dead leaves, shell, uh, eggshells. And he says, you know, if you pour like soil on top of all of this and let it rest for some time, this soil will become a rich natural fertilizer that actually is incredibly effective for growing fruit and vegetables. You just have to be willing to wait. And in some cases, years. And Milton was saying that the worst events of human history that we can't understand are only compost in God's wonderful plan to rescue and renew his creation. Now, how can we say something like that? Because in one sense, you could hear that and feel like that diminishes what you're going through. The reason we could say that is because that's exactly what we see in the gospel. That out of the greatest evil and unjust event, the death of Jesus, came the greatest good, justifying the people of God. Peter Scazzaro will write, God transforms evil into good without diminishing the awfulness of evil. That's what we see in the cross. And see, if you hold on to Jesus as you grieve, you will experience a savior and a friend who will never say, well, that's just too bad, get over it. He will say, I'm so sorry. Tell me your story. He will weep with you as he does with Mary when she runs to him in grief because Lazarus has died. As you open your life and your wounds to him, he will comfort you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, not just in the end, but even now. And that same Spirit who comes and comforts us also changes us. Because when you embrace your losses, when you name them, when you allow yourself to feel them, when you begin to find ways to express your grief to God through laments, and sharing with others, when you continue to trust in him, even in the confusing in-between, something startling happens in your life. New life is birthed out of that place of loss. You have a greater capacity to wait on God and surrender to his will. Grieving breaks that strong will within us to run the universe. You become more compassionate and kinder because You've grieved your losses. And so you now have this newfound ability to enter into other people's pain. It doesn't threaten you. Henry Nouwen will say, there is no compassion without many tears. 
you will be marked by a greater humility and brokenness because you get it. And you will be able to live more comfortably with the mystery of God and his plans. You can live with this holy unknowing and say, I don't know. You'll feel a greater sensitivity for the poor, the marginalized, the mistreated, the wounded, because you've begun to understand them. You will also have this new sense of hunger for heaven, seeing the gap between what is right now and what will be. You'll yearn for it and grieve the gap. This is why Nicholas Wolterstolf will say that mourners are aching visionaries. The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with their being for that day's coming, who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is neither death nor tears, and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries. Now, what kind of portrait does this paint of all these different characteristics that arise in you as you become someone who embraces grief in your life? Well, I would suggest that it is the portrait of our creator, of our redeemer, of our healer, Jesus. That when we embrace mourning, you become more like God. You're becoming more like Jesus who suffered on your behalf. And he is the one who invites you to come to him in that place, in that place of grief. He invites you to come to the communion table. If you're grieving, Jesus comforts. If you're tired and you feel burdened, he says, come to me, I'll give you rest. If you're hurting, Jesus can, can begin to heal. If you need to tell him your confusion, your anger, your hurt, Jesus says, I get it. I know how you feel, but I want to hear what you're going through. Tell me. If you need his help, his arms are open to you. If you need forgiveness, his words are, Father, forgive them. We're 